0: Well, good morning. Got a couple questions I want to ask as we get our time started this morning. What kind of writing instrument do you prefer? We're going to draw, no pun intended. We're going to draw a line here this morning because I'm guessing some of you are probably traditionalists. Give me a number two. Right? Number twos, if all the teachers said amen. Now, some of you like the lead and you decided that the number two wasn't good enough, so you've opted to move on and you're more of a mechanical pencil person, right? Like why mess with the sharpeners when we can just do a little double click and get the lead out a little bit more? Others of you say I've moved on and matured past pencils and I use pens, right? And then others of you are nuts because you not only use pens, but you use these like gel pens, which like, if you write on anything, it's guaranteed to do two things. One, write what you want to write, but also write what you want to write on the page behind what you write because it bleeds through the page, right? And then others of you said, I don't care what you give me. I've always got a bottle of whiteout, (laughs) right? Any whiteout people? Then they, got the, then they got the white-out pens, right? I mean, no? no? no. This is the real thing? No. Kenny Ray says, don't buy the pen. Just get the white-out. Use whatever you want. So we got pencil people. We got pen people. We got a variety of pencil people, a variety of pen people. Now, let me ask another question. What is your preferred form of navigation advice? Google? Google? Okay. Rand McNally <laughs> If anyone would like to go on a road trip, we got Rand McNally over here with along with your number 2 pencil. I where there's no like, yeah, internet or whatever. So yeah, I had to use the map. So stick with the map. Tried and true. Okay. I heard Google. Anyone use Apple Maps? Okay, got a diehard over here. Here we go. Ways. Thank you very much. And I don't know about you guys, but I use different ones at different times depending on what I want to do. Because like Waze, I think does a better job when it comes to navigating traffic. But on long trips, I found Waze to be a little sketchy, so I prefer to use Google. Apple, sorry, but not going to use you. What I didn't hear anybody mention was um, MapQuest. Do you know that MapQuest still exists? I printed off directions if anyone wants to get to Truest Park, to Truest Park using MapQuest. I don't know how they still have a website. (laughs) MapQuest, what we write with and what we choose to navigate with speaks to something about us. And I think we're going to see that as we continue their conversation this morning, as we look at the voice of God. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Today, we're going to look at a story where God clearly, audibly, in a dramatic way, speaks to a guy that we all know. If you've read your New Testament, a guy named Saul, or as we know him now, Paul. God speaks to Saul. We're going to find it in chapter 9. And I believe what we're going to see is a very clear picture and a reminder of how our God speaks. And I'm going to give you the outline right up front. No guessing, no waiting. I think in this story, and this text as we dig into today, what I want us to be reminded of is that God speaks. When God speaks, he does four things consistently. And they're this. First, God calls. Second, God converts. Third, God corrects. And lastly, God confirms. He calls, he converts, he corrects, and he confirms. All four of these things work together to be incredibly encouraging and directive for us as we seek to follow God's voice in our lives. So Acts 9, starting in verse one, it says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, where do we find ourselves in the story at this point? You see, Paul, Saul, is looking to go to Damascus, which is nowhere near Jerusalem. Got a map here. Um, You can see very, very faintly, Upper right corner is Damascus. Lower center is Jerusalem. It's about 135 miles. It would have been about a week's journey, which tells us one thing. At this point in the story, the message of the gospel has not just stayed in Jerusalem. The message of the gospel has gone as far as Damascus, which is a long, long, long way away. Part of the reason the gospel has gotten to Damascus is because of what Saul has been doing in Jerusalem. You see, we don't just find Saul for the first time in chapter 9. He actually surfaces for the first time in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. And we find that he's the one that people are setting their cloaks down. He's approving of Stephen's death. And in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all the way to Damascus... Except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this started at the beginning of chapter 8. And now when we turn to chapter 9, we find Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Why? Why? What is it in Saul that is so horrified and so passionate about squatching, squelching what has happened and what these disciples and the followers of Jesus are spreading throughout the region? You see, to understand Paul, we need to remember first, he was privileged. He comes from Tarsus, which is a Roman city. He, we know later on, we find out that he is a Roman citizen, but at the same time, he's also chosen, he's also a, has Jewish heritage. So he grows up with the privilege of being a Roman citizen, with the heritage of being Jewish, understanding the law, understanding the Old Testament, understanding the prophets in a way that is, he says, as beyond his years. He's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And he's zealous. He's passionate about the things of God. So passionate that he's killing those he believes are opposed to God. Paul himself in Philippians three, describes himself this way. He says if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's own words, he's saying, "I, I had it going on. And he's so smart, I love this. Later in Acts, Acts 22, he describes his conversion. Acts 26, he describes his conversion. Both times he's giving his testimony. This time he's talking to King Agrippa with the governor Festus present. And as he's, he's describing this things, he's just check out this little verse. And as he was saying these things in Acts 26, in his defense, Festus, the governor, said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind you ever been around someone and you're like you are so smart you're almost too smart for your own good like that's who we're talking about here Paul was brilliant Paul was privileged Paul was chosen Paul had it going on and so if you went back to this time and you said Paul why are you breathing threats against the church Paul, why are you so committed, so zealous for squashing this, for killing these people, for imprisoning these people, trying to set down this movement? I think Paul would have said something along these lines. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified, nobody, is the promised Messiah? I know enough to know that this can't be true. Why? Because according to our law, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. How in the world would God send a cursed dead man and call him our Messiah? This is crazy. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them, but their power comes from Satan. Why in the world would we let that continue? That's an affront. That's that's affront. That's offensive to our God. Therefore, we need to squash it. We need to eliminate it. We need to end it now. So it's in that posture that Paul is marching toward Damascus. He's headed there with the signed approval of the religious leaders in Jerusalem to go capture anybody who is still following Jesus and bring them back. Which leads us to verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. We know elsewhere when Paul's recounting his conversion, when he's recounting this story, he says it's about midday. So I don't know about you, like probably in the morning, sometimes you're driving around, we got a a route we take and I'm taking my kids to school and there's a certain place, we turn a corner and if we're there at the right time and it's the right weather, it is absolutely blinding. And you're kind of like, I think the road goes there and I hope no one stopped in front of me. This we know is midday. It's like standing out in the middle of the field at the ball field watching a game. The sun is bright. There's no cloud in the sky. And then all of a sudden, bright turns into brilliant bright. That's what happens as this light shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. When we look at this story, it's familiar, and we know the bottom line. He's bright light, Paul's blinded, God speaks, asks, why are you persecuting me? But if we're to understand the voice of God and we're to understand the way in which he speaks, there's something very simple that Luke, the writer of Acts, includes, and Jesus includes when he speaks. And it's the name. Jesus starts by addressing Saul as Saul, Saul. There are eight times in the Bible when God speaks to an individual and uses a double name. And every single time, it communicates love and it communicates intimacy. Check this out. We'll take a quick journey through the the Bible. Abraham. Abraham. God says, Abraham, Abraham. When? When he's sacrificing Isaac. He's got the knife up. He's ready to do exactly what God has said. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. God says, Jacob, Jacob to Jacob in a dream. As he's just found out that Joseph is alive, he's preparing to travel to Egypt, but he's wondering, can I leave where God has told us our promised land would be, the promise of our God to our forefathers? Can I leave that and go to Egypt? And God assures him, you will see Jacob and your descendants, will, you see Joseph and your descendants will be many, will be numerous. My promise will stand. This is not against what I've asked you to do. Moses, Moses. He's standing before the burning bush. I says, man, I pick you. I want you to be my spokesperson. I want you to become the person that will talk to me face to face, unlike anyone else. Moses, Moses. Samuel, Samuel. Remember the story? Samuel's asleep. He hears the voice of God. Samuel, Samuel. He gets up thinking that the the priest has has, has called his name. Instead, he goes, no, go back. And he goes, listen again, it's God. And what is God doing? God's calling him and saying, hey, I'm gonna use you in a crazy way. Martha, Martha, the words of Jesus. Martha's scurrying around trying to prepare everything. Mary's sitting and she said, Why don't you, God, why don't you ask her to help? And Jesus goes, Hey, I want you to sit with me. Simon Simon. Jesus says, Simon Simon, to who we now know as Peter, when he's predicting his betrayal. And lastly, Jesus himself says, Eli, Eli, or my God, my God, while on the cross, quoting Psalm 22 as he's basically about to cross the finish line of the mission that he came to accomplish, of laying down his life for you and me. When you look at these and you recognize, that, the, so then fast forward here to when we get to Saul and he, God says, Saul, Saul. In light of what we just walked through, all that Saul has been doing, how he has been living, what he has been doing, the pain and the heartache and everything that he's been inflicting on people around him, you'd think that Jesus would be mad. You'd think that Jesus would be pointing a finger. You'd think that Jesus would be like ticked off. But instead, the very first words that Saul hears are Saul, Saul. Which he would have known. That communicates that I know you. I know you better than you know you. I know you intimately. I have plans for you. I love you, but I love you too much to let you keep doing what you are doing because it's wrong. It's crazy is that there's another time in the Bible when we see a double name. Jesus actually ends the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he points to people coming to him saying, "Lord, Lord." And Jesus saying, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Jesus paints that picture that people, his listeners would have understood, there will be people who will act like they know me. There'll be people who, who feign intimacy with me, but they've never known me. You see, we have a God who wants to be known. We have a God who's made himself known, This is why we're talking about the voice of God, because we want to hear, we want to listen, we want to respond to when he speaks. But when God speaks, he speaks with tenderness, he speaks with love, he speaks with intimacy. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly encouraging to me. You see, the voice of God calls, calls us by name, calls us, because he knows us, but the voice of God also converts. In Acts chapter nine, verse seven, it says the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Can you imagine that? You, out of a place of authority, a place of power, and you are led by the hand into this city, and you sit in the dark for three days. I'm guessing that felt like three years. When you think, what, what's, what's next? Because the last words that he heard from Jesus were, Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Can you just imagine Paul sitting there, having encountered this, having seen Jesus, having heard from Jesus, having been told that he's been hurting Jesus. I don't know about you, but when you were a kid and you did something wrong and you went to your room, how miserable was the wait? Or the worst case scenario in my house growing up, Was go to your room and wait there till your dad comes home. I mean, you can make good use of the afternoon in your room, but as soon as you heard the garage door go up, (sighs) imagine Paul sitting. Jesus told me he's gonna tell me what I'm to do. I'm guessing I'm going to need to do something to make up for everything that I've gotten wrong. I'm guessing there's gonna be punishment. I'm guessing there's going to be something to pay. It's in that posture he's waiting. If you go through, through Acts nine, you see that God is speaking to this guy named Ananias and he tells Ananias, hey, I want you to go to this guy named Saul um, and you need to go and he, he's been, I've told him you're gonna come and you need to go pray over him. And uh, Ananias goes, <laughs> that's funny. Um, You slipped in that, like, Saul, like, I wouldn't know who that is. But actually, Saul, I know who that is. That was the guy that was coming to kill us. Like, God, don't, don't send me into a death trap, please. And God says, no, no, no. This is one I'm going to use. And I need you to go. And here, in the middle of the story, as we focus on Paul listening and hearing and responding to the voice of God, in the middle of the story is another person who hears the voice of God and responds, even though it makes absolutely no sense. And so when we get to verse 17... It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. When God speaks, he calls, and when God calls, he converts. What's missing from this text is what Paul did to deserve it. Because he did nothing. Nothing. He sat in the dark for three days, blind, pondering what Jesus had said, trying to reconcile what he knew of God to then what he had just heard from Jesus and trying to make those two come together. Ananias comes, and Paul receives the Holy Spirit. Not because he did anything, not because he fixed anything, not because he reconciled anything, but because of what Jesus had done for him. Conversion is not about you and I making our lives right. Conversion is when we see Jesus for who he is and what he's done and we accept it. And we move from death to life. Have you noticed in your world in your life, in your experience within the church, how many different types of conversion stories there are? Like, think about it. How crazy would it be if everybody had the same story? Like, there's a formula. Like, you do this and this, and then you hear this, and then you respond this way, and you do that. Like, that would be crazy. But reality is, we look around this room, and if we got up and we said, well, how how is it that you came to know Jesus? There would be stories that'd be similar. Stories probably like, in two buckets, right? I grew up in a Christian home, came to faith at a young age, duh, 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 or I went way off the rails and God brought me back, right? Those are two extremes. Two, there's thousands, millions of stories in between. How crazy it is! Is it, is it when we look at the different conversion stories, different ways that you and I have come into a relationship with Jesus, and it all points to the fact that guess what? Our God is sovereign. There's no one who's too far, and there's no one who's so close that they don't need to be saved. The reality is God calls everyone. He's seeking for everyone to take that step to go from death to life. Listen to how Paul describes his own conversion story in Galatians 1. I realized this week as we talk about Paul, when you talk about some stories, you're like, oh, there's this content and we can talk about this. Well, Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. So when it comes to like backing up this story, the, the resources are infinite. <laughs> so Galatians are like, what do, you, what do you think about Paul thought about here? Well, let me tell you what he wrote about it. Did you catch how, the key, the, how Paul summarizes, you distill all of his story real simply. There's two key phrases in this verse, these verses. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Paul says, as I look back, God wasn't wringing his hands going, oh my gosh, how do I take care of this Saul guy? He goes, I was set apart before I was born. Before my life started, you can even argue from Colossians, before the foundations of the world, that's when God set me apart. But guess what? There was a a lapse, there was a gap between when God set me apart and when he called me. Because the day on the road to Damascus wasn't the first day that God decided, huh, I'm gonna use Saul. But it was the day that he called Saul. Paul goes, every conversion story, as unique as it may be, has a set apart, and it has a called. See, the overarching theme we see in all conversion stories is God's absolute sovereignty. Simply stated, everything happens according to God's plan. So does God only speak to bring us to conversion? And we could end it really quickly. God calls and God converts, but there's more than that. What we see is that God also corrects you see, it isn't that God converts and he goes, I'll see you on the other side. He continues to speak as he corrects and helps us course correct to stay online to continue moving and living in the way he has called us to live. One of the primary ways he uses to continue to correct and bring us back is his word. Paul in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I don't know about you guys. God's never appeared in a bright light and spoken to me. But as we continue to study the voice of God, the greatest and most common way in which our God speaks is through his word, which Paul says is The purpose of it, one of the purposes of it is to correct, is to help you see where you are and where God desires for you to be. But you see, when we think of correction, we can quickly think of shame, we can think of regret, we can think of God correcting our mistakes, we can think of things we've done wrong. But Paul's story reminds us, tells us, there is no shame in God's correction. It's a calling us back to who he has made us to be. Think about, look at how Paul describes his story and what would be incredibly shameful, embarrassing, and something you would have thought he would have buried. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent op- opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Through that again. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what words you would use in your story, but. I'm pretty sure that blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent are pretty strong words. And in those words, in those descriptors of Paul's life and what we read earlier of him persecuting in the blood of saints, being on his hands, the grace of our Lord overflowed for him and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus are available to you and me as well. He goes on and says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's the key when it comes to correction. I don't have to bury the mistakes that I've made because those mistakes are the very thing that God wants to use to point other people to him. Check out that last last slide. But I received mercy for this reason. For what? Is it just for Paul? No, Paul says that in me as the foremost of what? Foremost sinner. Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. This changes how we view God pointing out and correcting the mistakes and the sin in our lives. It's not about shame. It's not about putting us down. It's about lifting him up. And Paul, throughout his ministry, constantly pointed back at his story. You think that somebody who had done so much good would say, I think my good has outweighed my bad. Therefore, let's focus on the good. I can forget who I was. But instead, he again and again, and as you look at the timeline of his letters, the later his letters get, the more he speaks about where he came from because he's more amazed at how far God has brought him and how deep God's love is for him. There's a sign, I believe, when it comes to spiritual maturity, is not that we get further and further and further away from our past, but we learn to embrace our past because of how it points to our future and how it points to our God. You see, our enemy, when it comes to God speaking, he wants us to hear God's correction and think that it was, is keeping us away from God. The enemy takes our mistakes, takes our sin, takes our failures, and he uses it as a weapon against us. But here's what's so amazing. What we see in the life of Paul is that God takes the weapon out of the enemy's hand that he's using against us and instead takes our stories and weaponizes it against the enemy. Because what does the enemy have to say when he goes, well, I mean, yeah, you, what's true of you and your past is X, Y, and Z. Instead, the enemy goes, God goes, yeah, and I can save that. And that's not too far for me to reach. That person is still within my reach. That is not something to keep you away from me. My love goes deeper than that and deeper than that and deeper than this. All of a sudden, you see, I love the picture of God using our past and our mistakes, correcting them so that he can take those things, weaponize them, put them back in our hands and use them against the enemy. That's the beauty of God's correction. And it's why we do not live in shame. And it's why we do not have to put away those things, but instead embrace what God has redeemed in those things. So if God's voice calls and it converts and it corrects. What I love is that it also confirms. It confirms. When Paul heard the voice of Jesus, he didn't start over. Instead, throughout the New Testament that Paul writes 13 of the books, what he continues to do is piece everything together. And he goes, man, I don't know how I missed this before, but this connects to Jesus and this connects to Jesus and this connects to Jesus. Where in the past he would have said, how can the Messiah be someone who you hung on a tree? That person is cursed. Instead he looks back and goes, no, that's exactly what the Old Testament said. That's exactly what the prophets said. They, proph- they prophesied that this would happen. He's piecing it together. And what Paul would step back and tell you is, guess what? I didn't leave, give up the old story to embrace the Jesus story. It was all Jesus' story. And so when God speaks, he doesn't speak and give us a left hand turning. I'm like, well, I guess he changed his mind because, you know, back then he said this, but now he says this. When God speaks and one of the way we know that God is speaking is it confirms what he has always been doing. Now, is it going to look different? Absolutely, Jesus died because people were not ready to see or hear that God was gonna work this way. So part of the correction is us coming into alignment and understanding, oh, what I thought is different than what God is actually doing, but it doesn't change the story that God has been writing. It's all one continuous story. Look at Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they're talking about Jesus, this story they're telling, trying to make sense out of who he is. And they say this, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. See that when they carried out all that was written of him, he's saying, hey, there was a whole lot predicted. And guess what? Every single prophecy came true. When that was all done, then they took him down, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now as witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled or this he has confirmed to us, their children, by raising Jesus today and, I have be- and today I have begotten you. What's Paul saying? The story didn't change. I misunderstood it. I didn't see it. But God called, God converted, God corrected. And I can now see he has confirmed one continuous story. So where are you today? I don't know about you, but when I read these stories, I would love on the way home today for God to stop me and shine a light and speak to me and go, hey, this is where you've got it wrong. But I think he is speaking. He is calling. He's calling you and me. He's calling you by a double name because he knows you. He loves you. If you're here today and you don't know him, if you don't have a relationship with him, he's inviting you. He's inviting you to step into his story to recognize who he is, to recognize that how God has been working throughout all of history, is leading you to this moment where you would have you might not feel like a supernatural conversion, but nothing is more supernatural than going from death to life. And if you know Jesus today, He's calling to you, and He's maybe there's a space in your life where He's correcting. He's saying, "Hey, what about here? What would it look like for you to bring this area of your life into alignment with how I've invited you and called you to live?" all the while confirming who he is and the story in which he is writing. In April of 1970, there was a story that captivated the world. It had to do with the space shuttle program. Anybody know what the story was about? The Apollo 13 mission. Apollo 13 launched on April 11th. And what do you know about the Apollo 13 mission? It didn't go as planned, did it? But what's interesting is you have maybe seen the movie. What can you tell me about Apollo 12? Or what can you tell me about Apollo 14? I'm guessing not much. I can't tell you anything. But I know about Apollo 13, which is ironic because Apollo 12 and Apollo 14 went mostly as planned and accomplished their mission. Apollo 13, you could say, was an epic failure. But we don't remember it as a failure. We remember it as a success because they came home. As they were approaching, um, trying to come back, Remember, their spacecraft is crippled, and they basically have, um, in order to conserve power, have shut down all power, which meant all heat. It's about the the temperature of a meat locker. And they need, what Houston has recognized is that they are on a trajectory that will mean they will miss the earth. And they radio up, and they say, hey, you need to make a course correction. But here's the problem. You course correct by using the tools in which you have on the spacecraft, which are now disabled because they can't turn them on. And so what they said is you need to have a 39-second burn where we are going, you are going to turn on the main engines... And as best as you can, you need to keep the spacecraft on target with the Earth. And so for 39 seconds, you're going to propel yourself that way. And if you can keep yourself locked in on Earth, then in those 39 seconds, it's going to give you enough momentum. And it's going to give you the right angle in which for you to hit the Earth at the correct angle so you can enter. Because here's the danger, guys. If you go too low, you'll burn up. And if you go too high, you will literally ricochet off the atmosphere and into outer space. And that's going to be how the story ends. If you've seen the movie, you know that they do this exercise and Jim Lovell basically is looking out a window. And he said afterwards in an interview that they could see the earth and they could see the Terminator point, which is where the dark and light, where this side of the globe is dark, this side of the globe is light. And he drew a a crosshair on the window. And as best as they could manually, as they burned the engines, they kept the earth in the crosshairs as the only way of knowing which way in which they were going. And it worked. It was successful. And they came home. Sometimes, I think in our day-to-day lives, we are not aware of how significant a simple course correction may be for us. We don't live in fear of, if I don't do this or that, then I will miss heaven, then I will miss home. God is bringing us home. That's guaranteed for those of us who know him, but it's in the way in which we get there that I believe God is speaking to us today. What would it look like to keep your eyes on Jesus, to keep your eyes fixed there on a focal point, so as the engines burn, you are in alignment and going the way God has called us to go? I started by talking about pens and pencils and GPS. Do you know what those speak to? We use different writing instruments and we honestly like an electronic GPS more than a printed map for one reason. It allows us to correct mistakes. There's a reason you didn't take a pencil or a pen into a test to bubble in the answers. Because you wanted the ability to undo it. You wanted the ability to fix it. So you brought in a pencil. See, here's the deal the author of your story and mine doesn't need a pencil because he doesn't erase anything, he uses everything. You see, the reason I have to bring in a pencil in places where I need to update something or I need to fix a mistake that I've made is because I make mistakes, but our God doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, he doesn't need a pencil with an eraser. You see, when our God calls and our God converts and our God corrects and our God confirms, when we step back, what we recognize is even the mistakes are the very things that he's writing into our story to ultimately give him glory. So wherever you find yourself today, wherever you found yourself in the past, and wherever you may find yourself in the future, our God is calling. Our God knows you. He knows your story. There's not a part of your story that he's gone back and erased. But there is every part of our story that he is writing into the grand story, which is ultimately for his glory. That's what we see in the life of Paul again and again and again and again. And that's what I hope we can see God do in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a man like Saul. Somebody who could not have been living more contradictory to how you had called him. But someone who was not beyond your saving. A man who had a lot of parts of his story that I'm sure he would have liked to erase. But God, that's a man whose every part of his story you used and you used him to point to those parts of his story. God, as evidence of your grace, your love and your mercy. So God, this morning, For anybody here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would come to know you. They would hear your voice. They would respond to a God who knows them, loves them, longs for them to be in relationship with you. That they would say yes, knowing that there's nobody who is too far for you to reach. And God, for the rest of us that know you, God, will we not simply be content with the course we have set for our lives, but God, that we would constantly be aligning our lives to the direction and the course that you have set. God, we're excited about the day in which you bring us home. But God, we're also excited about today where you get to use our stories for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.